Welcome to the Indian Journal of Law and Public Policy podcast. Hello everyone. Welcome to the second season of the IGLPP podcast. I'm your host Pranav Awar, consulting editor at IGLPP. Here we discuss major happenings of the legal and policy field. Today, for the 6th episode, we have a very special guest, Mr. Debanshu Mukherjee. Mr. Debanshu is one of the co-founders at Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. Currently, he is their lead at corporate law and financial regulation. He was instrumental in advising the government on the design and drafting of the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code, and that is where I am going to interact with him today. Thank you, Mr. Debanshu, for taking your time, and I welcome you to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me, Pranav. So, beginning with a slight background to your professional life. before we move to legal developments as i said already in the intro that you were actively involved in the drafting of ibc also you were a member of a government appointed committee for operationalizing the nclt and you have deposed before two parliamentary committees as well and was even present during the parliamentary proceedings when this code was passed as i can understand that is quite fascinating from the view of an outsider observing this interaction between legislative and research think tanks if you could share your experiences or challenges during these interactions you know so it was a fascinating experience and uh, you know when uh, uh, we started with the you know we really had you know no expectations of what kind of work we'll get but uh, we were fortunate that uh, we were called called to advise the government on uh, this large reform project and uh, you know the the way this started was you know we first prepared a concept note early in uh, uh, february march 2014 and you know and at that time uh, it was the upa that was in power and we went and met some uh, officials in the ministry of finance and they basically asked us to come back after the elections and then um, soon after the elections we went back to them and you know presented this idea and we said that you know bankruptcy law is one area where Uh, the system appears to be completely broken and a lot can be done and so some of them uh, you know bought into the idea and uh, uh, soon uh, you know in a couple of months uh, we saw that the government in its uh, uh, budget declaration had kind of announced that uh, they would be uh, you know that, that you know it's looking at looking at uh, developing a ecosystem for bank you know a separate bankruptcy regime for micro and small enterprises uh soon after that a uh, committee was set up and uh, we were ap- appointed to advise the committee on the design and drafting of the law and interestingly the by by this time the project had actually expanded beyond msmes and the government was now looking at reforming the entire bankruptcy law ecosystem and uh, you know so uh, it, you know it was a you know a very very uh, you know uh, Uh, you know, fascinating exercise. As I said right at the outset, uh, there were uh, other, there was you know a lot of senior professionals you know which are, who were part of the bankruptcy law reform committee. There were senior government officials. Uh, Dr. Raghuram Rajan, who was the governor of the RBI at that time, he also came and you know interacted with the committee members in between. So the entire experience was highly enriching. And while uh, we were kind of doing all the research uh, for the committee and kind of uh, taking the lead in the beginning uh, it was a big learning experience for us as well in terms of uh, you know the expertise that a lot of other stakeholders in the committee brought uh, you know to the table and then uh, you know the committee divided its work in two parts you know they first released an interim report and then uh, and after that a final report was issued 
along with the draft bill and this was sometime around November 2015 and uh, after that soon after that the government tabled the bill in the parliament and we continued to assist the government throughout right up to you know its uh, enactment in May 2016 and uh, uh, we also advised them on the implementation of the law after that so yeah so overall it was a brilliant experience like that was really interesting to hear the entire process and thank you for sharing them too hopefully we will keep seeing this interaction now moving to more contemporary developments on IBC and no doubt more, most vital of them is the suspension of IBC section 7 9 and 10 through insertion of section 10a via an ordinance so mr debanshu ordinance seems to have certain issues and one among them is that it puts a blanket stay on bankruptcy proceedings it has taken into garb limitation uh, on debtor companies voluntarily wanting to submit itself to the insolvency process or if insolvency is not due to COVID-19 crisis. So do you think this measure of suspension is slightly excessive? You know, this suspension uh, should be seen in light of the overall uh, political environment. And, uh, you know, it's not, although bankruptcy is seen as a very technical uh, legislation, I think uh, the political economy uh, has had a big role uh, you know on uh, how the law has evolved over the last few years and this ordinance is you know a direct uh, result of the current political economy and uh, you know before the IBC was enacted as some of some people might be aware the law was heavily loaded in favor of the debtors and uh, the government consciously decided to move the pendulum to the other direction uh, and now the you know law is largely kind of loaded in favor of creditors so to speak uh, and therefore, in this environment where a lot of people uh, can at least in theory argue that their financial distress is largely attributable to factors which are completely beyond their control, it's not fair to have uh, bankruptcy proceedings initiated against them. And especially in the Indian context, because our law, as uh, some people might be aware, is a you know, creditor-driven displacement system where the promoters lose control of the process. Uh, they lose control over their companies and an insolvency professional is appointed to run the company. So therefore, in a certain sense, the company is taken away and uh, this uh, this uh, displacement can actually be permanent. And therefore, I think in this environment, my sense is because of the political economy and the government kind of, my sense is, wanted to give a message that, uh, you know, promoters should not be, uh, you know, kind of thrown out of their companies if, if they are under financial distress because of the crisis and possibly that's why they kind of suspended it in the manner they have. I agree that section 10 uh, could, you know, could, uh, you know, could have been saved and, you know, that those proceedings could have been allowed. But, you know, the, uh, the problem is that even if, uh, you, you know, if you look at section uh, 10 applications, uh, it's very broadly drafted and, uh, you know, it's not just the company on its own, but also senior officials within the company who can initiate proceedings. So uh, technically, the CFO of a company can file a case without board authorization. That's because that's that's how a corporate applicant is defined and, uh, under the code. Uh, so you know, so I think in my assessment, in order to avoid situations where the shareholders and the board don't agree and senior officials want to file. Uh, and given the fact this is a displacement regime, the government possibly decided to suspend the whole thing. Uh, but I, you know, and also, you know, the, we must not forget that 
even when a section 10 application is filed uh, the displacement can still be permanent because when you do an auction in ibc uh, bidders will you know you know submit bids etc and then if you know the coc decides and the company you know will be under the control of the person who submits the best bid so therefore it's unlike some other jurisdictions where the data continues to remain in possession of the company throughout uh, we just don't have that uh, under our system and possibly the government kind of thought that might just make sense to suspend the whole thing so i think that pretty much covers what all it covers and then there is another side of it that what it does not cover and probably we are you know yet to see some substantive measures on this side which is the parties that section 7 9 and 10 does not cover the like these can be bond holders and i read one of the articles on vidhi itself about personal inven- personal insolvency bodies so is ibc in itself uh, capable enough to cover them in such circumstances of covid and the economic slowdown and then we do not need such suspension for them or we will need a separate mechanism for them altogether which the government has not done yet yeah see i think uh, the code was intended to be a comprehensive legislation for the entire ecosystem so it was meant to apply to both corporate debtors and individuals uh, so at least in theory it applies to everyone but in practice the personal insolvency provisions have not been notified it and that's largely because uh, the adjudicating authority for resolution of personal insolvency uh, is the debt recovery tribunal and uh, uh, for those who practice they might be aware that you know the debt recovery tribunals are already overburdened and my sense is uh, because of that the government has been reluctant to uh, notify the personal insolvency provisions generally although they have done so for a limited class of uh, uh, individuals uh, folks who have given uh, personal guarantees to for corporate debt um, but i think in my assessment because of the situation with drts at the moment they have not been able to do so uh, but i think it's high time that that you know the government kind of does something about it because the law has been an, you know was enacted in 2016 and it's been almost four four years and we have not seen uh, the personal insolvency provisions kick in uh, but on the corporate side you know more or less everybody is cons- uh, covered you mentioned bondholders and i think bondholders do get covered under the definition of financial creditors under the code and therefore they are actually uh, uh, you know eligible to file applications and they also participate in the committee of creditors uh, uh, operational creditors you know like trade creditors mm-hmm. uh, suppliers employees etc they can also file but they don't have the same level of participation in comparison to financial creditors for decision making uh, but as far as their rights are concerned they are also adequately protected because uh, there have been several amendments to the code which now ensure that uh, uh, operational creditors also kind of uh, get their dues you uh, know in, in order of the you know in, in in accordance with the rights accorded uh, you know accorded to them in the order of priority if we go through the ordinance and uh, one confusion which has been pointed out by few authors is the interpretation of the word ever in the proviso to section 10a so like quoting this proviso for convenience it says no application shall be ever filed for initiation of a, a corporate insol- insolvency resolution process of a corporate debtor for the said default occurring during the said period so like does that mean no cirp for these defaults arising during such period which seems not to carry much sense to me personally so how do you interpret it and like fill coherency in it yeah 
Absolutely. So I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, this uh, ordinance has not been uh, very happily drafted. And uh, so uh, there are some issues with it. And uh, But if you look at the intent, that's very clear. If you uh, look at the preamble to the ordinance, it clearly says that, you know, this is aimed at provide, providing relief for a limited period for uh, financial distress that is happening in this period. So uh, I think... Uh, the lot of, you know uh, we have spoken to a lot of practitioners and everybody kind of seems to agree that uh, this will not cover continuing defaults in the sense that uh, if you have defaulted and uh, for instance to give you an example if the default is for, for about a lakh and by the time this period completes you are not able to pay that amount back uh, then that default becomes continuing uh, which means that you can always file, uh, you know, uh, later, uh, you know, whenever this kind of this uh, uh, this exemption is lifted. So it's not that once you have defaulted, you don't have to pay back this amount ever. So it's not like a free subsidy that the government has given. It's only a limited protection that nobody basically you can't be displaced uh, in this period if you have defaulted. Uh, you, you know, during the six months for which the notification for, for which the suspension is applicable. That, that makes sense. I guess like reading the entire ordinance together will bring more harmony in the entire ordinance as well. So like, like let's move further into IBC and economic slowdown measures and focusing on Vidhi's recent work. So in a recent briefing book titled Towards a Post-COVID India 25 Governance Challenges, Vidhi recommends that redesigning the fast track CIRP must might be an effective way of providing relief to the MSME sector. Now, what is the underlying reason that current fast track CIRPs can incapable to deal with the challenges of 2020? Like, is it the manner of initiating fast track CIRP under section 57 or it is non-exhaustive non -exhaustive to deal with it or anything else? Like, where do Vidhi feels that we need to redesign that? So I think, you know, uh, at the time when the law was being de designed, although originally, as I said, you know, it was uh, the first budget entry kind of referred to MSME, but then the law became, uh, you know, a very broad, ex you know, the, the project became broader and it kind of focused on everyone. Uh, but, you know, the law in our assessment is uh, not kind of designed to address MSME bankruptcies and it's not just us who have said that the insolvency law committee you know which was set up to monitor the implementation of law also kind of realized that you know we need to have some uh, exemptions for MSMEs and that's why they designed uh, this section 240A that allows the government to modify provisions of the IBC uh, for the purpose of MSMEs and uh, and I think there are two uh, uh, reasons for this one like most msmes are you know uh, you know really you know by definition are small in scale and therefore often uh, the regular bankruptcy proceedings could can be really really expensive in proportion to uh, the amounts at stake uh, you know that some of these msme bankruptcies involve and uh, secondly uh, uh, these msmes the way they operate you know most of them operate through uh, you know, uh, networks where, you know, the promoters know people who kind of uh, sub supply, uh, you know, ups, you know, uh, you know uh, necessary equipment, services, etc. to the, uh, to the, to the company personally. And uh, mm -hmm. also the number of financial creditors are typically, you know, one or two at max three. 
so it's a you know in terms of scale you know it's it's very different from a large data which has multiple suppliers multiple employees and multiple financial centers so therefore very 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 different and therefore one need not need a you know highly uh, you know uh, uh, process based expensive mechanism like the regular corporate insolvency resolution process and most importantly you don't have to displace the management in msme bankruptcies you can allow the promoter to remain in possession of the company while you are trying to resolve and that's what we kind of propose in the briefing book also and we, and this is not possible under the fast track mechanism because the fast track mechanism uh, unfortunately also does not contemplate debtor in possession that's also a displacement system and the only uh, difference is that you know it just provides for a shorter time period for resolution other than that there is no major difference uh, in comparison to the regular uh, insolvency process so therefore uh, so so the two things that we suggest should change uh, uh, you know are basically move to a debtor in possession system for msmes and uh, also kind of try to see uh, how do you kind of reduce the involvement of uh, the adjudicating authority because uh, uh, for msmes you need to uh, you know try and find some kind of an informal uh, solution uh, although should have the same legal sanctity as a formal uh, solution but uh, as i said right at the outset you can't make the process more expensive than the money or the amount at stake talking more about reforms and your work in particular so i was reading an article that you wrote for the print in july where you discussed how the financial sector requires more than merely bailout packages for them to be effective so recently the supreme court has directed that accounts not declared npa as on august 31st shall not be declared npa till further orders and later that day only financial minister in a press conference said that the distress caused by the pandemic should not impact lenders assessment are we not still observing like talking about these two particular uh, happenings which took place and then talking in the context of your article that we are still are we not still observing ad hoc measures with no comprehensive policy which can cover employment regulation or monitoring bona fide use of packages etc in my assessment both uh, the courts and the government are, are kind of uh, struggling to balance the interest of uh, the debtors and the creditors and while uh, one might say that the supreme court uh, by saying that you can't classify them as npas anytime soon kind of is uh, is has said something in favor of the borrowers uh but we must uh, understand that from the government's perspective uh, they seem to be worried about uh, uh, both the borrowers and the banking community and we must know note that most of our large banks are public sector banks so we are essentially talking about public money here uh, so uh, if so on one hand the government obviously wants the borrowers to kind of uh, get out get out of this as uh, soon as possible but on the other hand they can't uh, let uh, you know them kind of uh, take advantage of this at the risk of uh, you know the banking industry suffering huge losses because as i said it's indirectly the public which is funding most of our uh, large banks and uh, there's a lot of money at stake so it's a very difficult balance that they need to strike and yes there is a bit of ad hocism uh, so to speak but in this environment uh, we, one can understand why 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 this is happening especially in a developing country where we obviously don't have uh, enough resources to kind of uh, bail out people left right and center 
my sense is uh, we are seeing a bit of that happening and uh, and that's why we, we had, you know I, in that op-ed we had kind of argued for a separate mechanism for uh, you know more doing this in, in a more organized and systematic way where you uh, because you know in some of the other jurisdictions the way they are trying to resolve this is by kind of doing direct bailouts and not moving through intermediaries uh, like banks uh, and uh, uh, and you know but in but the big risk there is that if in those cases it's very likely that those that money will never come back and in the Indian context I'm not entirely sure if the government is in a position to roll roll out something of that nature because most of the money will be public money and uh, you know we really don't want a situation where none of this actually comes back uh, so uh, what we had proposed was a, a regulatory mechanism where you give this money out through uh, you know through a well-designed statutory mechanism where there is a monitoring agency that kind of oversees how some of this money is being distributed and track how it is being utilized and make sure that it's being utilized to generate positive cash flow and preserve jobs and not kind of pay old loans and uh, which will only kind of exacerbate the debt overhang problem uh, but again designing that kind of a system will also involve expense you know you know expenses and uh, in this environment I'm not really sure if the government will be in a position to do that maybe they can uh, start with you know uh, you know a small set of companies maybe companies which are most adversely affected or sectors that are most adversely affected and then move on to uh, you know others but at the moment I think everybody is kind of uh, just reacting to the you know to uh, to uh, situations as they develop every day and uh, yeah and there is a fair bit of ad hocism but in my assessment this ad, ad hocism is understandable so I have a last question for this podcast which is like completely off the line with our discussion till now and I'm personally interested to know your opinion on it. So in Swiss Ribbon's case uh, where IBC's constitutionality was upheld for the most of the part, Supreme Court used the principle of manifest arbitrariness to declare that a mandatory time period of 330 days as fixed under the code for completion of the CRP as unconstitutional. So my uh, question is, doesn't the use of constitutional principles on economic legislation bring more complications and may sideline technical ways to deal out with such challenges to provisions? Because uh, there may be a situation, and as happened in this case as well, many are not sure if the constitutional principle in itself is correct. So there are more complications which arises as they get implemented on economic laws because there are a lot of people who wrote articles and papers about how there was no need to apply for the manifest arbitrariness principle and uh, may maybe harmonious interpretation of the entire code could have just worked out you know i uh, agree with you that uh, you know there there were other ways of kind of achieving the same result in this case and uh, the supreme court uh, arguably need not have used this doctrine uh, but you know we must understand that especially for uh, NCLT we've had this huge history where the government has been litigated for several years and you know you know the, the, the Supreme Court upheld its constitutional validity after about uh, 10 years of litigation and uh, and a lot of you know you know this this uh, litigation had to do with separation of powers between you know the judiciary and the executive and uh, this entire the, and which also relates to this entire debate around tribunalization uh, so 
in this context, if you kind of see some of these observations, they start to make sense because the Supreme Court has time and again said certain things to the executive which they have not complied with. And then the executive and you know keeps coming back to them with more. And uh, in in this particular case, they uh, you know the the they in my assessment didn't like the use of the word mandatory and therefore wanted to send a strong message, and that's why I used yeah, the right. doctrine. And uh, mm-hmm. but it's very likely that they could have achieved the same result by just kind of uh, you know reading it down to uh, to say that you know uh, this is in any case uh, directory and this uh, terminology appears to be superfluous uh, because of separation of mm-hmm. powers and not necessarily unconstitutionality that was very good answer and instrumental in exploring more into this yeah, proposition but, at least but, for me but i must uh, kind of qualify that by saying that i'm not a constitutional lawyer at all and yeah, i'm essentially right, a commercial right. lawyer so uh, please take that with a pinch mm-hmm. of salt <laughs> but i mean like that's the thing right we need to take opinions of everyone a lot of constitutional enthusiasts have written a lot about it so i wanted to explore it from the economic angle as well and i think i've slightly received it but i will more explore into the proposition so lastly uh, a lot is anticipated and even happening in this area of financial law and there is much to be explored and analyzed so as the conclusion for the podcast if you could share with us your new projects or ideas you are planning to pick up or looking forward to in future yes so uh, so be you know, as, as you might be aware that the government has set up this insolvency law committee and it's actually been in place uh, since 2017 as a permanent committee mm-hmm. which monitors the implementation of the code. And uh, my understanding is that uh, after the suspension kind of expires, the government might want to kind of understand, uh, you know, uh, how the insolvency system can actually help in mitigating the effects of this crisis and you know world over bankruptcy systems are being used for ensuring that uh, you know uh, you know uh, viable businesses get rescued and unviable businesses get liquidated uh, to cut losses for everyone and uh, i think uh, if you know if we are called upon to advise the government on that project uh, i think that will be one big uh, thing that you know we'll be looking forward to because that's because that's going to be huge if at all that happens and uh, the two things that the government has announced uh, that you know we are now uh, looking forward to see when when it finally happens is one the government had announced this separate scheme for insolvency resolution of msmes uh, it's not out yet but we don't know when that will be out so uh, so it'll be interesting to see what they talk about there and they've also set up a committee for uh, uh, insolvency resolution through a mechanism known as pre-packs which is essentially an out-of-court mechanism with a certain degree of formality to give it the same legal standing uh, as the regular proceeding uh, so I, uh, we don't know what's happening there but uh, we understand that uh, uh, you know the, the government intends to kind of uh, do something there as well uh, so we'll be looking forward to that piece also whenever that comes out and uh, so, and that could also be very useful uh, during the ongoing crisis, uh, given the fact that now you know courts are not functioning uh, in full, uh, you know, in full capacity right now. So an out of court uh, pre-pack mechanism could be really useful and efficient. Uh, so you know, largely uh, these these three uh, three these three things as, as, as you know essentially. I think those are really exciting ideas and much 
anticipated as well i'm sure people interested in this field would love to follow up on your work there so i think uh, on that note we can end this podcast uh, thank you mr dibanshu for taking out time and sharing your views with us uh, thank you so much prana it was uh, uh, you know really good to have this conversation at uh, uh, you know when you're working on some of these reforms uh, we sometimes don't get the opportunity to kind of think through uh, you know uh, our own work in the manner we do when we have these kind of conversations so uh, really grateful Uh, to you for having me over for this thank you so much so uh, thank you for uh, listening to this week's episode of the IGLPP podcast we really enjoy talking to mr debanshu about something very important happening in the financial sector and its regulation we especially liked when he talked about the need to kicking the apparatus for personal insolvency bodies to look at the scope of intent to bring coherence in the IBC ordinance 2020 and the cost and process analysis of MSME's CIRP requiring a new fast track CIRP process so for more legal readings if you would like to reach out to us visit iglpp.com we are into our 12th issue and volume 7 issue 1 is now accepting entries check our website to know more details on submissions we'll be seeing you next week thank you Thank you for listening to the podcast. Do not forget to check our website for more updates and legal articles. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you next time.